Hello, and welcome back to the IBS Freedom Podcast. I am joined by a Camp registered dietitian, master and extraordinaire, and I'm Nikki. And today we're going to be talking about placebo breath testing. Ooh, ah, ah. the excitement. Oh, <laughs> yes. So let's, uh, let me ask for starters, Amy, I think the best part to start this episode, or the best way to start this episode is to think through when one might consider getting a breath test in the first place. Like maybe somebody has been diagnosed with IBS or maybe they haven't done it. Maybe they haven't been diagnosed with anything yet. Maybe they just started having tummy troubles. Maybe they've gone to their primary care, but not a GI doctor yet. Like at what stage of the journey might a breath test be useful? And what, what other considerations or what symptoms might lead somebody to get a breath test, for example? Yeah, that's such a great question. I, I think typically people go down a longer road before they get breath tested. And then probably our clients have had multiple breath testing before they found us. So they've gone down another long road. But I do find that it's more common, commonly being done in the conventional sphere. I mean, there's still some that are not like it's not top of mind to run, but I do find that a lot of my clients are getting them run by a GI doc or mm-hmm. a conventional doc, which is a good which is a good step, I think, um, from a SIBO standpoint. But I think if you're having symptoms of IBS, diarrhea, constipation, bloating, if you have a lot mm-hmm. of bloating, I think it's a, a big trigger or a big red flag that maybe breath testing. Yeah might make sense. Yeah. And you've, and I think I'd add to that and you've tried some other strategies first. Like if you've tried all the typical things that, that make sense to help with constipation or to help with Mm -hmm. bloating, um, maybe change diet slightly, maybe done some lifestyle work and still Mm -hmm. nothing's really budging. That might be the time to get breath tested. Like if you, you know, have tried some of the basic stuff. Maybe you've t- tried some enzymes or supporting digestive capacity. Mm-hmm. Maybe you've tried taking some probiotics and maybe yeah. you've tried some of these things and just nothing seems to budge it. It's just pretty yeah. consistent. I also think if you're, if you are pretty reactive to, I don't want to say this is all the time, but if you find that you're pretty reactive to FODMAPs, sometimes that yeah. can be an indicator to get a breath test done. Those would be the times that I'm really, I, I could be missing, I'm sure I'm missing some stuff so you can fill in the gaps, but that would probably be the person who I'd say, oh, it might be worthwhile to get tested. Yeah. And I think that was a pretty good overview. Um, I would say too, like breath testing is reasonably non-invasive with an asterisk that I'll get to in a minute. Like it's usually pretty non-invasive. You drink some sugar, you breathe into tubes, bada bing, bada boom. You don't even have to leave your house to do it. Um, I would even, depending on what the symptoms are, I would consider something like a breath test even before going the route of like colonoscopy and endoscopy. I don't know if you've seen this a lot, but I've seen quite a few patients who got all of the whole rigmarole of testing, like cameras up both ends. And then it was like a while later, somebody was like, oh, BTW, we should do a breath test. And then that was it. Well, Um, like I think. Right. I think that. Oops, sorry, I don't. I, I was just gonna say, I think that that's probably a unfortunately like a money mm. thing. Uh, unfortunately, like 
you know, GI docs probably make a, a lot of money off of doing endoscopies, colonoscopies. Yeah. And so I think like a lot of times it's just the knee jerk, like, oh, everyone yeah. who has like an issue and not that those are very valuable tests and yeah. could rule out like major things like those can be really valuable tools. Uh, but I think you're right. Like it would make more sense to do um, something like uh, a breath test. I, I almost even think that too. I had a client who uh, was like, his doc was recommending him a colonoscopy just to rule out risk of like cancer. I, I think it might've run in his family and we we're like, well, mm. there's other tests that you could potentially do to indicate if that's uh, 100% the best route to go. Like if, if something on like a, we, we ran some other stool markers mm. to see if that's something that makes sense for him to get a colonoscopy because he was really not wanting to. So I think again, sometimes you're right. It's like jumping straight into the deep end and more invasive stuff instead yeah. of doing some general testing, even like a last days, like even running mm-hmm. some of the general stuff you could see on a stool test makes sense to me before potentially jumping into the the endoscopy colonoscopy route yeah. when you're having IBS symptoms. Yeah. I mean, and again, like it depends on the symptoms. If somebody is having, you know, symptoms of inflammatory bowel disease, more like you know, blood, a lot of blood in the stools, a lot of mucus in the stools, like a a lot of diarrhea. And diarrhea can be a SIBO symptom. So it kind of depends on what else is going on with the diarrhea. But if there's like really distinct, like left lower quadrant pain, um, or like really sharp abdominal pain, like those, those are the sort of things that I would start thinking, okay, it's appropriate to do a colonoscopy, or if you have like nutritional deficiencies, you're deficient in calcium and iron and all the things under the sun. That's like, well, it might make sense to screen out celiac disease. But even with that, like you could start off by running the blood work for antibodies for Crohn's colitis or celiac disease, get that as your baseline. And then you might be able to diagnose it based on blood work and not even proceed to the procedure. Right. That's what I did. I, I had the transglutaminase antibodies but I never went on to get the endoscopy to confirm celiac disease because I was like, well, why? Like, why am I, for me personally, I was like, why bother? Right. It's going to be expensive. Right. And, you know, it's it's a procedure. There's going to be some risk and a recovery period from a procedure. And I knew at that point my body super hated gluten. So it was like, eh, all right, I'm just, I'm, I'm going to go with the very, very strong likelihood that I have celiac disease. Right. I don't need somebody to go look at my villi and tell me that. So whatever. Right, right. Um, but, you know, it's like start with the cheaper, least invasive stuff. And then by all means, you know, tap into these diagnostic procedures that we have through conventional medicine. Right. Um, but it's, it's bizarre how frequently patients will go to, or people will go to a GI doctor first no stool testing whatsoever, maybe elastase, maybe calprotectin. And that's like it. Right. But, you know, oftentimes a lot of my patients who have gone to GI doctors, which is the majority, most of them have never had stool testing of any kind through right. their GI doctor. But many of them have had a colonoscopy or an endoscopy or both. And it just, it's so confusing. Like versus a SIBO breath test, it's like a two or $300 test, even if you have no insurance coverage. Okay. Right. Cool. I would rather do that. Um, and I would agree. I think I would also add if somebody has a lot of the symptoms of SIBO, 
So bloating being one of the more common ones I see. Right. Constipation or diarrhea or a mixed presentation could go with that. Abdominal pain, especially related to meals. And I agree with you, an intolerance to FODMAP foods. If there's some combination of those things, then I would start to think more along the lines of SIBO. And also, like, if somebody has numerous SIBO root causes that are significant in their history, then that might also compel me. Like, I had a lady, she has celiac disease and Crohn's, uh, and we know that there's a decent um, prevalence of SIBO amongst people with celiac disease and amongst people with Crohn's. Right. A little bit less so with colitis, but it is there with colitis as well for some people. But she had Crohn's and celiac disease. She had had a couple of food poisonings that, like, one of them was 20 years ago, and she still vividly remembers it. Like, she was never the same since that Mm. food poisoning event. She had taken a PPI for a number of years. Like, she had, you know, it's like autoimmune. Oh, she was hypothyroid. Like, literally all of the things that I screen out. Every single root cause that I put in my notes, it was yes, solid yes for every single one of those. So for her... I was like, I would be shocked if you didn't have SIBO. Right. And right. she responded, she responded gloriously to the low FODMAP diet. Just so much less inflammation. She dropped a bunch of weight. She felt like her gut had really settled down. Um, so everything, you know, put together, it really seemed like SIBO. But I will also throw this out. Depending on the person, there are cases where I think the person has SIBO and I recommend not testing. Right. Right. So like with this woman... She was so she was so inflamed, so compromised, and such severe IBS. And she had the most profound case of celiac disease I've heard of. Like if she gets cross contamination, even of gluten, she goes to the ER, straight up. Yeah. And you know when we met, again I told her like you have literally all the symptoms and every single one of the root causes that I am aware of. Right. I would be shocked if you didn't have SIBO. However, if I have you do a breath test, which is a provocative test, it's going to make you feel like hot radioactive garbage. So I don't think, I don't want you cursing my name from the bathroom floor for three days. So let's just skip it. (laughs) And we'll do like, we'll have you do low FODMAP for a while. We'll start with a prokinetic. We'll start working through some of this stuff. But it is inherently a provocative test, which means if you do have SIBO, it has the potential to make you feel acutely wretched after you ingest all of that sugar. The whole purpose of the test is to get your bacteria to make a bunch of gas so that we can capture it in the tubes. Right. So it's like you're intentionally poking the bear. And depending what your situation is and your symptoms, it, it might not be worth the risk of how crappy you're going to feel, pun intended, just doing the dang test. So there is that caveat. Like it's usually a, a very inexpensive non-invasive test, but for people who are really severely compromised, oftentimes I will recommend treating empirically just based on symptoms and history and trying to get as much mileage as we could out of that before we consider something like a SIBO breath test. Right. I think too, it's so hard for me to wrap my head around because I think most of the clients that come to me have had skipping it and just acknowledging and analyzing other factors. Because I think the problem too is, is sometimes people over rely on the breath test results, which we'll get into like false positives, false negatives, Mm -hmm. false interpretations. Um, But 
you know, I, I remember specifically a client that I had maybe like six months or so ago. We worked together for maybe four or five months. Um, awesome client, super responsive to everything that we did pretty quickly out the gate. Like we made good progress. We had like some ups and downs as usual, but really good. She was feeling amazing. No bloating anymore. Like her bloating went down. Um, her symptoms, again, pretty much all of her symptoms went, went away, like mm-hmm. um, for the most part. So um, she gets this breath test result back and her, her hydrogen levels were still high. I, I think again, like depending on where it was hitting her, her trap, like her, um, yeah. her large intestines, like it was kind of borderline mm-hmm. depending yeah. on where the cutoff is. And of course she gets these results back and she's like devastated. Mm-hmm. Like, oh my God, I can't believe it. Like I was, I, I thought I was doing so good. Right, right. And it's like, oh no, like you're still doing amazing. You're still able to do what you want, eat what you want. Your diet's so broad now. Like don't let the test totally deter you if you're feeling really well. I think sometimes like it, it can be trippy if you take a test and you're like, wait, this doesn't correlate with how I'm doing. Um, and I have had a few other situations like that um, where I just have to tell people, like, I know this, like, is the result, but I think you're doing really well. I think we keep doing what we're doing. I wouldn't mm-hmm. change anything. I wouldn't jump on herbals. Yeah. Um, so I think that's the frustration sometimes that I have with the breath test is such an over-reliance. And I know some practitioners in our space are extra vigilant of the breath test, probably more so, like they're not necessarily analyzing the full context of the case. They're just analyzing what the test says and, and changing what they're doing based on the test. And sometimes that might be a mistake. And I'm kind of sitting here like, internally chomping at the bit to jump in because (laughs) you alluded to this already and I think you know it's going to come. I'm going to throw my profession under the bus once again. I think, honest to God, I think that the over-reliance on breath test and the repeat testing almost almost exclusively is coming from functional medicine, integrative medicine, naturopathic medicine, either the practitioners themselves or the influence that those professions have on the rest of like, you know, Instagram and whoever, but like all of my patients who got breath tested by a GI doctor. And it's, it's like the, the two opposite ends of the world again, where I feel like I'm in the middle once, once more saying, right. ETF guys, on the conventional medical side, what usually happens in my experience is that the doctors, if they've run a breath test at all, I'm actually surprised too, especially in recent years, more and more GI doctors are telling people, oh, I think you have SIBO. Let's not do the breath test. And just let's just give you a faximin. Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't personally know if I'm super comfortable with that um, necessarily. And we could talk about that in a minute. But oftentimes they will do the breath test once, if at all. And then it's like the naive assumption in that field in <laughs> conventional GI is like, okay, cool. One round of refaxamid and you're cured, baby. See you never. And obviously that only works for so many people. There are some people for whom that is like miracle beyond miracles. Right. But I almost never see GI doctors repeating the SIBO test unless their patient insists yeah. and pushes them to order it. 
But I don't really see it coming out of the conventional space hardly ever because they're naively assuming, oh, it's an infection. Side note, it is not. Right. But they're assuming, oh, it's an infection. You kill the infection. You move on with your life. Cool. Happy schmappy. You're settled. And that's not the case. But then on the the other end of the spectrum, you know, it. I remember this even when I first started getting into functional medicine and going to classes, especially with the Institute of Functional Medicine, one of like their favorite little slogans to throw around at conferences is... I know what you're going to say. Test, don't guess. Right. And it's, yeah, like there's some element to that, right? Like you want to catch stuff early and you want to catch the subtleties and like sometimes you could miss stuff based purely on symptoms. That's why I, I'm sure you're the same way. Like we don't go purely based off symptoms and health history when we work with our patients and clients. Like we do some testing as well, but it's this whole like test, don't guess. And I can't make up my mind if people in my space really adamantly believe that or if it's got like a touch of like marketing to it. Because if you think about it, if you need right. me... If you need me, the oh wise doctor, to order your new test for you, it's like it's like this dependence mechanism. Like I can right. make you depend on me, and then you have to come back and pay me. And right. it's it's helping the patient buy into. I'm using air quotes. Buy into needing to work with you because let's face it, people don't want to spend money unless they need to. So I think that there's like a little bit of truth to that statement. And I think there's also some, like, kind of shady marketing, like, trying to manipulate people into spending more money with you that goes on. Um, And then also there's, you know, the the internet is detrimental for the healing journey in numerous ways, oftentimes. But, like, you know, then a practitioner or a patient listens to a webinar by Allison Seebecker or some big authority figure who advocates retesting, what is it, like, every other day, practically? I think is what she recommends. Like literally every right. other day you're doing a SIBO test right. and you do not stop killing until you have thoroughly killed everything. And it's, yeah, it's, you know, I think it, it convinces people that that is the truth and that is the best way. And that's the only way. Right. And I think the truth probably lies somewhere in between. So like for me, I will oftentimes run a breath test once at the beginning of care not always, but oftentimes, then, you know, I'm going to follow that patient mostly based off of symptoms, but also if there's like some blood work or urine testing or stool testing that was helpful, I might rerun those to see like, oh, has your ferritin gone up? Has your thyroid normalized? Have your antibodies come down? Is calprotectin coming down? Whatever it might be. Um, And then, you know, it's like once people are pretty well convinced that they're normal and their lab work looks great, then maybe if they bring up, hey, can we do another SIBO breath test, then maybe we'll do that. But oftentimes I am telling them, hey, there's false negatives and false positives. It doesn't really give me right. the whole story. If you feel good, I'm keen to just leave it be. But right. ultimately, it's your decision. It's your journey. Um, but right. That's that's how I approach it, at least. Right. <sighs> You brought up some some interesting things. I'm gonna try to uh, bullet bulletproof or bullet point some stuff. There you go. I think with the test, don't guess scenario. I think a lot of times too, people test a whole bunch and then they could just get lost in the weeds. Like there's so like some of those functional medicine tests, what I've found, I mean, there's a lot of information on them, not necessarily breath tests. That's a little bit more straightforward, but 
like some of them are so in the weeds and I feel like the conclusion is then like oh your gut's dysbiotic that's like the end of the story I feel like for told them that without a stool test right like no one's really walking someone through the test to like show you why it was valuable what points are are need to be flagged and things for your particular case but yeah I mean I tend my approach tends to be probably more conservative on testing. I think testing can be very valuable. I think by the time most people find me, they've just been tested so much. So I'm kind of reviewing their past lab work yeah. and trying to determine. Usually we'll we'll cover bases. So like I'll address anything that's very obvious to, to myself that needs to be tweaked, whether that's lifestyle, diet. Like if someone comes to me and they're under eating and they're stressed, to the max and not sleeping or something like that. We might try to get those moving in the right direction first Mm -hmm. and then see what tests might be necessary. Yeah, I think like the the knee-jerk test of bazillion things out the gate and then not necessarily even have a decent discussion about the value of each test and what was discovered, um, I think is problematic for sure. And I, I do think you're right. I've definitely seen that most of the time when people do get the conventional docs to run a breath test, it's at their own pressing. Yes. Like, oh, I found, like, I researched SIBO. Um, and so sometimes, again, they're, they're going to run the, the breath test. But I, I have also seen a lot of people just take the rifaximin. Uh, and I think the what I typically hear is that the docs are like, oh, that test isn't necessarily validated or like it's not necessarily the best test. Um, so they just do the rifaximin. Sure. Right. Which I, I think rifaximin tends to be in my head like the more aggressive of the options, like right out the gate. Yeah. Um, not to say, again, it can't be helpful. Like what you're saying, it can be very helpful for certain people. Um, but... I tend to go from like what's the most conservative but still helpful yeah. scenario and then like what are the different levels of that spectrum versus jumping immediately to the most aggressive. Um, but that's sort of my approach. But I, I have seen that trend as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, again, the truth lies somewhere in the middle yet again. Right. Like, I get. Right. I, I don't know. Did I ever tell you? So I went to this big, like, and I'm going to use air quotes for those listening and not watching. It was a microbiome conference. It's, um, what was it called? It was in Miami two years ago. And it was the... Was it microbiome labs? No, 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 no. No, this was like bona fide, okay. like conventional medical. Um, oh, it was okay. like, the, God, what is it called? It was like the gut. Oh, wait. Uh-huh. It was the Gut Microbiota for Health World Summit 2019. And this is a conference that's, again, bona fide conventional medicine. This is not hippy-dippy naturopathic stuff. Right. But um, not that that's invaluable. I go to those all the time. But um, I thought, oh, how cool is this? Conventional medical people talking about the microbiome. Holy cow, this is going to be fantastic. And it was, I don't even know, like couple thousand people, maybe. Um, And it's a conference that hops around to different locations in the world. Like, I think the year prior to that, it might have been in Spain. 
or something. So I was mm-hmm. excited that it was in the States and I went right. and it was such a bizarre couple of days. I went with a friend who's an integrative nutritionist and we were just, <laughs> we were like this weird little pocket within, you know, we, we just kind of hung out with each other, but it was so bizarre because, um, the main sessions were largely pretty good. They're, you know, different metabolites or microbiome studies. Um, and I remember there was one class, and I wonder if I even have the name of it, because I have the printout right here of the notes and whatnot. No, I don't think I do. There was some sort of, like, breakout session or something. Um, and I thought, okay, this this could be real. Oh, yeah. Um microbiome sequencing and what it means for patient care. And I thought, that sounds great. Amy, where'd you go? I'm here, dude. Okay. As long as you're still here. (laughs) So I disconnected for a minute, but I I can, I think it's okay now. I don't see you though. Let me turn on my camera. I see myself, but I don't see you. Okay. There we go. There you go. Okay. So, so anyway, you, you heard, so the class was like microbiome sequencing, uh, and what it means for your patients or something like that. And I thought that sounds so cool. Yeah. It was class all about stool testing. So I went in, sat down, very happy in this breakout session. And I kid you not, the very first thing this presenter put up on the screen was a result of a GI map. And they proceeded, I kid you not, to bash all stool testing, all microbiome-based stool testing. Right. They showed they showed test results from the GI map, Genova, uh, maybe doctor's data, I forget now, uh, Cyrex. It was like an hour breakout session, and they were just tearing apart all these tests. And the whole premise of this entire hour-long thing was that these tests are not validated like they're independent labs and they're not necessarily getting validated or studied by third parties and stool testing and looking at the microbiome is borderline useless anyway and omg our patients are going to these quack doctors i don't know if they used the word quack but it was heavily implied our patients are going to these quack doctors getting these bogus tests and then they're bringing their results into us and asking us to make sense of it. And then we have to just shrug and be like, okay, like this is a useless test. And they were, they were venting. They were talking about their deep frustration uh, using this sort of testing. But the whole takeaway, one of the takeaways from the conference is like, oh, don't do stool testing for the microbiome. It's worthless. It's like, well, okay, it's flawed. And stool is not a homogenous substance. Like, depending how you do the sampling, you could get different pockets of bacteria or enzymes. It's going to mostly reflect the environment in the rectum at the very, very tail end of the colon, not necessarily the beginning or middle of the colon, and certainly not the small bowel. Right. Like, yeah, there's some flaws to it, but it's still really, really useful. And I know because I do stool testing, and then oftentimes I will base part of my protocol off of that stool testing and it pretty consistently seems to work like more than the odds of me just taking a stab at it right without testing so i think that there's something to it is it the be all end all no is it flawed yeah but like if you go into it knowing that then you can use this tool and have that little like asterisk in your brain to tell you oh it's flawed but we're gonna make use of it anyway 
The same thing right. with breast testing. It, That's, I sounded like I said breast testing. Not breast. <laughs> for clarity. Breath. 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 <laughs> breath. I think what's interesting to me is I still feel like the flaw from a functional medicine standpoint is that, like, you need these tests to tell you how your body is doing. And yes, yes, there's value to that. But I also think you should also be able to learn to listen to what's working and what's not working that Mm -hmm. I that becomes disconnected. The same thing with the diet. It's like, we have all the answers with with Mm -hmm. this particular diet, but that might not be the right fit for you. Um, And if you're not able to listen into your body, and it's all about the tests and the, the diet, you lose sight of what's actually working and what's not. Because your your ability to listen to what your body gets muddled and confused, and I think you're you're exactly right. There's certainly value, but there's also so much value in being able to look at in being able to really feel how you're responding to certain things. Mm-hmm. And so it's when you really blend the two together that you're gonna get the best results. If you ever yeah. feel like it's like too lab centric. I in like there's just so much testing um especially if it's not something like if the things aren't really correlating with your symptoms mm-hmm. you know it, it I really try to find a good practitioner that's going to look at the presentation uh, of your symptoms and how you're feeling and your progress and and considering testing but not only considering testing yeah and yeah, I, I think that that's a good point. And I know like there's one practitioner locally here as, as a good example, very lab centric mm-hmm. to the point where like I worked with somebody who worked with this guy at one point and he is kind of, he's like the MTHFR person locally yeah. where like everybody gets SNP testing and everything is based on your genetic snips. Right. And I remember this one woman with IBS, histamine stuff, mast cell activation, and a million food intolerances. And she went to this guy and he literally, he was like, oh, it's because you have, you know, an MTHFR polymorphism and this one and this one, this one loaded her up to the gills with a million different methylated B vitamins. She felt like garbage. And it like the lack of response to care. And he still kept pushing on, pushing on, pushing on, and only basing things off of, well, these are your SNPs, and this is what, you know, like, the NutriVal or whatever it was is showing us. And I remember just telling her at one point when we started working together, I was like, yeah, but you've had your genetics your entire life, and you only developed IBS two years ago. (laughs) Right. Right? Like, if MTHFR was dooming you to have these issues, then chances are it would have it would have presented itself earlier, mm-hmm. right? Like birth. Um, yeah. And it's not yeah. to say that these things aren't irrelevant. Like I'm a compound heterozygous character or carrier of MTHFR. So like, I know a fair bit of it, but it, I don't blame things on my MTHFR snips. I just know, right. oh, I need to be super careful of like my B vitamins because of that. But right. it, I'm not going to fool myself into thinking that that's like the reason I, I had certain things happen in my life. But it's just, it's weird because there was a disconnect where the patient was like, no, I'm not only not responding to your care program, I feel worse. And the doctor just basically ignored her and was like, no, you need to double up on your methylated B vitamin and you should be good. And it's, 
we already have such a bullshit internal dialogue. Every single one of us has some degree of imposter syndrome and like doubting ourselves and anxiety and stress and depression. Like we all have little, little bits of that inside of ourselves and this little shitty internal critic who's saying, no, what you want is invalid. What you feel is invalid. You must be crazy. They're better than you. And then, you know, it's like you put a human with that, that internal dialogue into a situation where a practitioner straight up ignores what they are saying and is not, and is invalidating their story and their symptoms. Right. Or this over-reliance on, oh, you can't trust your body. We have to keep testing and testing and testing. Oh, you feel better? Well, we'd better, we'd better verify that you are better. Like, it's right. just... Right, Every human being has that little shitty internal dialogue somewhere deep within themselves. And it's just, it's an excuse for that little crappy inner critic to come back out and be like, see, I told you, I told you you were terrible and that you don't know anything and you're not really better. And I knew it all along. You're going to die. And like, (laughs) we don't need to give that inner critic another reason to come back out and play. (laughs) We need to have things on board. Yeah. Sit down, Carol or whatever yours might be named. Um, But yeah, it's, it's, it's frustrating to hear stories like that and see people that just got really beat up in that scenario. But like I said, you know, going back to the testing, just because something is imperfect doesn't mean that it's useless. Stool testing is imperfect, but it's still quite useful. Candida testing is imperfect, but it's still quite useful. Doing blood work to try to assess inflammation, imperfect, but still very useful. Same thing with steepo breath testing. It's a little bit more on the imperfect spectrum, admittedly, at a pretty high rate of false negatives and positives. But, like, it's not that it's an unusable tool. It's just, you know, I, I think that this idea that we have to keep retesting and retesting and retesting and teaching people to not trust themselves is preposterous and really damaging, um, yeah. both in the short term and the long term. Yeah. No, I agree. And I, I'm thinking that my inner critic is a Karen. There we go. All right. Karen and Carol, we'll, we'll have to shush them intentionally. Yeah, for for sure. And maybe we talk about like scenarios of false positives. Yeah. Um and and then maybe scenarios of false negatives too. Yeah. Well, and it's funny you say that cuz I just saw a new patient yesterday and I straight up told her that I think that the SIBO breath test she got was probably a false negative. Mm-hmm. Um it's like, you know, she has a lot of the symptoms, chronic bloating, constipation, um, just like really wiped out feeling. Um, she's had two GI maps already because she already worked mm-hmm. with another functional doctor and it didn't really produce anything super fruitful for her doing that. Um, but, you know, the, the history and the root causes made sense. The symptoms make some degree of sense. It's not a slam dunk, but it's it's pretty consistent with what could be SIBO. Right. Um, so with her, you know, I told her, for example... I think that your test was probably a false negative. I don't think it makes sense to do another SIBO test. Like doing the same thing, expecting a different result. I don't know. Right. So I said, why don't we try some things that would normally be good if you did have SIBO? And if you respond positively, then that builds the hypothesis. And if you don't get any usefulness out of those strategies, then it kind of subtracts from that hypothesis. Mm -hmm. So I sent her home 
to try out some different prokinetics. I sent her home with the speed dating, speed dating protocol for prokinetics, and we're going to see, all right, does one or more of these prokinetics help you? And in what way could we make some sense of this case? But going back to your point, and you're going to laugh, watch this. I'm going to get my sticky note. I don't know about you, but one of my brain lesions, okay, I'll share two actually. And to side note, I've told Amy this, but maybe not all of you. I have a hypothesis. I have a lens through which I see the human race. And that is we all have brain lesions. It's just some are more severe than others. <laughs> so, <laughs> and that could be like, you know, like everything from schizophrenia to anxiety to just like the one thing that you always forget. So right. and like quirks, personality right. quirks. So one of my brain lesions is that I can never remember how to spell the word skull because I was a rower and there's a type of rowing called sculling and it's spelled one way. And then the skull, like your anatomical cranium skull is spelled the other way. And still to this day, I do not know which one is which. I'm pretty sure the anatomical skull is with a K and I think sculling is with a C, but I can't swear to that. So I always have to look it up. Similarly, another brain lesion of mine, the point of this, is I can never remember the difference between specificity and sensitivity. Like, Uh. so, I mean, not off the top of my head. So I keep a sticky note on my computer (laughs) reminding me which one has to do with false positives or false negatives. So with my sticky note in my hot little hand and some notes from the probiotic advisor course, because I thought that this was a pretty good starting point, Um, So for the two common types of breath tests, so you've got glucose and lactulose breath testing, right? For lactulose, the specificity is about 85%. According to this, it looks like a 2009 study, and I think there's a couple others here. So 85 or so percent is pretty decent for specificity. So that's, uh, you can look at that as a pretty low rate of false positives, like 15% false positives in that particular study. Um, versus in this one for, or I'm sorry, yes. And then glucose was about 81% for specificity. So again, like 20% false positive with glucose. So uh, right about similar on this study. Then if you look at sensitivity, so the rate of false negative or the likelihood of false negatives, lactulose is coming in at 52% and glucose at 62%. Not stellar. Like, that's, you know, for lactulose, that means you've got about a 50-50 shot of getting a false negative or yeah. actually getting a correct diagnosis with lactulose. And then with glucose, um, you know, not a whole heck of a lot better. So not super encouraging. And then another study, a more recent one from 2014 that Dr. Haberleck mentioned in his course was the high, he actually mentioned another study. So 2014, about 41% of IBS patients without SIBO based on aspirate testing had a positive lactulose breath test. So in that study, they said there was about a 41% rate of false positive, and there was a 35% rate, um, or I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. So there's hydrogen and methane. So for methane, there was about a 41% false negative rate. For hydrogen, there was a 35% false negative rate. Uh, for the two mm. gases, respectfully, both of them using lactulose. So, mm. you know, it, it, it depends on the study that you're looking at. There's probably a, some newer studies, too, that, that I didn't have the ability to pull those up really quick before the podcast. Either way, you know, you're looking at best case scenario, 
20% probability of, um, which did I say, false negative or positive? I think false positive. Um, and like a 50-50 shot or maybe a 40-60 shot of false negative versus getting accurately diagnosed if you do indeed have SIBO. Like, right. oh, paint me unimpressed. Right. Well, and, and I think too, probably it would be good to discuss why there's uh, false positives and false negatives. And mm-hmm. I think it all comes down to probably the primary issue is that um, the transit time of the solution is going to matter, yeah. like how quickly your body's processing and moving that substrate once you you drink it down, yep. um, how fast your body's moving that to the small intestines yep. is going to vary based on the individual. And even ba- like sometimes the substrate might change that too. Like lactulose probably is going to move quicker. Yeah than glucose through the system. So it's something to keep in mind. But that's where like more of the false negative, false positive situation comes in. Mm -hmm. Is it kind of depends on the speed of that. And there's other things too. Like, I mean, improper prep, which we'll talk about is going to affect, affect the the results of the test. It's also interesting too, because you sent me that article. I read it more recently about, I think it was like the oral microbiome yeah. affecting yeah. testing. Um, so this particular article was looking at like how the oral microbiome might affect the breath test mm-hmm. because if you're drinking the solution, what's in the mouth could affect things. So the interesting part is if I remember it right, they had people doing like mouthwash. Yep. Like they had people not doing mouthwash, then they had people do mouthwash just at the beginning of the test. Yeah. And they had some people doing mouthwash before each sample was taken. Yeah. Um, so what they found was that people who did the mouthwash just at the beginning, mm-hmm. they had higher rates of, me- like a higher false positive methane mm-hmm. rate um, compared to those that didn't do any mouthwash and those that did mouthwash before each sample. Yeah. Um, I believe they said there was like a rebound, like a, a weird rebound reaction with the methane. Um, I think it, sorry to interrupt you, but I think it's been a little bit since I read that one. It was Dr. Haverleck, um, actually was one of the authors on that paper. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my impression was because really what you're looking at for a SIBO breath test is the difference between the lowest value and the highest value right, within right. the span of the small intestine. And I think the idea was that if you do the mouthwash before the first sample, it's going yeah. to it's going it to lower the- your baseline, but then it'll creep up. So they had one group doing mouthwash before each sample collection, mm-hmm. and that actually seemed like it was the most accurate um, yeah, what I recall. Yeah, and it's like that way mm-hmm. you're not you're not artificially suppressing just the baseline value and leaving the other ones to go up potentially really high by right. comparison. But also you're hopefully negating the effect from the oral microbiome on the gas production because you don't. The purpose of of the test is to find out which gases are coming from the small bowel and when. You don't want to be collecting a significant amount of gas from the colon or the oral microbiome. 
great. I thought it was it was a really neat study. Right. Um, I'm kind right. of tempted to have my patients do like mouthwash before each sample when they're right. doing breath test. I'm not sure if I'm going to pull the trigger on that yet, but it was really interesting. Yeah, for sure. I think it's an interesting, uh, certainly an interesting idea. And I think it makes sense. Um, so yeah, I, I think, again, there's different factors. It's it's not a perfect test. I think uh, the, the transit time, potentially oral microbiome uh, could play into play into things. Um, yeah. And then like prep, colon. the prep in the colon again, like as, as soon as things are going to hit the, the colon, depending on, again, like how you're interpreting the test too. Um, but you're right. Maybe there's some extra gas from the colon that's hanging around that could drive up, up the breath test markers too. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Well, and to that point, like remember from our poop 101 episode, we were talking about that blue poo study mm-hmm. where they were measuring transit time really if you think about it if the transit time from ma- oral rectal transit time for people with like type 1 bristol stools scale stools mm-hmm. the average was about five days so right. people were like seven or eight days for transit time um and if you think about it again like the the idea with the SIBO test is that you do a special low fermentation restricted diet for 24 hours in advance of the test. And that way you shouldn't be feeding the microbiome a significant amount of food for that span of time. And you can get a nice accurate test. Well, for people who are constipated, Mm. it might take them five days to clear out literally all the shit in their colon (laughs) And then any remnant food and fiber in the colon could be driving up gas production on the breath test. So really, I wonder also if people who are constipated need to do a much more intense prep to do a a breath test. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. Maybe Um, take like, maybe take a laxative to get everything out, not everything, but you know, like maybe take like a cold, like a mini colonoscopy type prep, like not, not that severe where you're doing like a full bottle of Miralax and a Dolcalax, but like something along the lines of trying to clear you out a bit more. Yeah. I mean, I think honestly, um, and I've toyed with this also, and I might start implementing it is maybe like two days before the breath test, have people take Senna or Aloe or Miralax something to just purge the colon a bit and then the day before then they could do the prep diet the low fermentation diet and then they do the SIBO breath test so it's probably the best of both worlds where you're clearing everything out of the colon reasonably well and that way you don't have residual gas being detected on the breath test that's coming up from the colon and muddying the waters of how you do your test yeah that's a really interesting and good idea honestly Right. Well, I kind of see. like in another life, I think I should have been a researcher because I'll come you up with the have. ideas, stuff like this or like the prokinetic experiment. Like I'll come right. up with ideas, but then I'm like, oh, the thought of writing a proposal <laughs> and getting the funding. Like, I don't right. Do it. And like finding right. the volunteers and funding it. I'm like, I don't want to do it. Right. If there's any microbiome or GI researchers listening to the podcast, you can feel free to take that idea and do two arms of a study, one group of constipated people doing SIBO breath testing with just regular one day only prep 
the, right. other, the other group of people take a big whopping dose of Miralax two days before, clear out their colon, and then do the prep. I would love to see a study on that. Right. But I would think be that that's pretty cheap to do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, just get yourself some, some Miralax, a mallow, slap slap it on. Yep. Yeah, slap it on that gut. Yeah. Poop out that constipation. Yep. Purge. Got a clean clean Purge house. It. Purge it. Yep. Yep. But anyway, um, let's um let's go into a little bit more about the prep and the actual doing of the SIBO test, unless you were gonna weigh in on something first, because I interrupted you again. No, no, it was like a slight glitch on my end, so I might have been like, oh, like, a little, sh- little sh- shock and awe on my end. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the prep is not necessarily the most fun. No. Kind of just eating the most bland diet you could possibly think mm-hmm. of to try to prevent what you were talking about, any of the colon it, gases interfering with things. Yeah. Um, minimizing fermentation as much as possible so you get a much clearer, uh, a, cl- a cleaner sample set when you're doing your, your breath test. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I think it's mostly like rice, chicken, eggs, um, yeah. th- those white sorts bread. of foods. Yep, white bread. Um, I think clear broth, no vegetables. But like mm-hmm. clear, plain chicken broth, no onion, no garlic, no nothing. Right. Um, salt and pepper. Yep. I think that's it. Pretty yeah. much. Um, it's a very non-thrilling diet. Um, and so, you know, if you think it, it a person who wakes up at 7 a.m. and goes to bed at 10 p.m., what you would do is the day before the test from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., you would be doing this very, very boring diet, the prep diet. So breakfast, lunch, dinner, you would eat things that are going to be readily absorbed, non-fermentable, not a not a drop of fiber for the microbiome to consume. Right. And then after, say, 7 p.m., then you fast. So from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. the next day, you do a fast, which normally most people would do that anyway. Right. And then... The next day, you go ahead and you do the breath collection. So you get a baseline sample before you ingest the sugar, and then you ingest the very nasty sugar solution. I don't know when the last time you did a breath test was, Amy, but oh my God. I did a glucose test. It was right at the beginning of the pandemic, actually, just because I wanted to record a video for my YouTube channel. Hashtag regret. Because, oh my God, it was a glucose-based test. I kid you not, my glucose went crazy and I bottomed out and I was very hypoglycemic. It was a really rough time, but I I survived to tell the tale, but um, it was like drinking pure liquid sugar. I kid you not. I think it was like three quarters of a cup of granulated glucose that you then mix with water and chug down. Oh it was gross it was real rough i would take lactulose any day of the week in retrospect and that's another consideration for people who are diabetic pre-diabetic or if they're really vulnerable to blood sugar swings like people who easily get hypoglycemic i would not Mm -hmm. do glucose even though it is like number wise it's the better of the two tests i would go with lactulose for those people because it's not worth flaming your body out with the blood sugar swings because again like with mine 
right before the last sample was collected, and I think I might have done a three-hour test, which in retrospect was totally unnecessary. But um, at the last sample collection, I was getting really, really shaky and woozy and like lightheaded. And I was here in my office and I was alone. I was like, oh God, if I pass out, what's going to happen? No one's going to find you. Yeah. And I was, I was feeling like really weak. And luckily I just, I kind of caught onto it early enough. So I reached up in my magical cupboard up here and pulled out, I think like, I don't know, like a granola bar and some nuts and I don't remember what else, but I pulled out a bunch of food collected my last breath sample and then immediately started eating some real food. But I actually felt like crap for the rest of the day. Not my gut. My gut was totally fine, but I think my body was just so pissed at me for doing the blood sugar loop. Right. Um, I, I felt really acutely hypoglycemic and woozy, shaky, passy outy. Um, I think I had a headache. I had to cancel some appointments that day because I naively did the test in the morning and was like, Mm -hmm. I'll be fine by 11 o'clock. No, Um, so I ended up canceling some appointments that day and moving people around. And then I just kind of felt a little bit out of it for the rest of the day mentally and Mm -hmm. didn't do too much of anything. And then the next day I was fine. Um, and then the next day I got a vaginal yeast infection. Kid you not. All of my yeast was like, woo, glucose, let's party. Um, but anyway, but that's usually you don't hear stories quite like that. I just had an extra fun time doing it. Um, side note, it was a negative test, so no SIBO for me. Thank you very much. But, um, but just be mindful that, again, if you're prone to the blood sugar swings or, heaven forbid, if you're insulin resistant, pre-diabetic or diabetic, you definitely don't want to do glucose. You want to do lactulose. On the mm-hmm. flip side, if somebody has really wicked diarrhea, you might not want to do lactulose because right. it's going to speed up your transit time and act as a laxative. And then you'll be cursing our name from the bathroom because you have crazy diarrhea that's worse than your right. normal. Um, so that's another consideration to take in too. Um, but yeah, but you drink the sugar solution, you breathe into tubes, you mail off the tubes, and then usually everybody just moves on with their life after that. Right. I remember, it's been a while since I've done a breath test, but I remember the one thing that kind of confused me and made me a little nervous is like, I, I believe in the instructions, like you're supposed to breathe into the bags or whatever, the, the little bags that they collect with yeah. the gas in it. But I, I, and they were like, do not blow. Yeah. Like, so you're not supposed to blow. I always found that a little bit confusing. Um, but yeah, you're not supposed to blow into the bags. You're just supposed to kind of breathe normally into yeah. the bags. I was throwing, I, I actually wish that they would include like, a, an extra tube for practice because yeah. the first time you do it it's confusing I actually I think again it was over a year ago if you go back in my YouTube channel to the one like all about the procedure for breath testing I yeah. I was recording myself with my webcam when I was doing the breath samples at least the first one and I think if I remember correctly I look visibly confused and distraught because <laughs> I'm like trying to figure out I'm like alright like and, and I think they said, too, to not, like, breathe really heavily. Right. right it was like, it was like, a you know, you're just supposed to, like, breathe normal. But it's like, it's hard to breathe normal when you're, you have a bag in your mouth. Yeah, it was very perplexing. So mm-hmm. I had to, I had to kind of just, like, yeah, focus and slow down. Because the temptation right, is, is to, like, is to, and really, right. like, take a deep breath in and then blow 
into the tube. But yeah, you're supposed to just like breathe, you know, business as usual, breathe right. like you normally would, and then, you know, put put the tube up to your mouth. So I'm pretty sure in my video I was visibly confused. Um, right. I tried to do the first one. And then after that, I got the swig of it. But the first one was a little bit confusing, for sure. Right. And I think, like, because you're breathing into the bags and then there's, like, a tube. Is that accurate? Am yeah. I, yeah. There's, like, a tube that you stick in. And I, I think, if I remember right, too, there was, like, a number of seconds that you were supposed to, like, stick the tube in for. That also, yes. I feel like, mm-hmm. confused me a little bit. I, they describe it in the instructions, but I was like, did I... Did I stick it in for too many seconds? You know, I, I yeah. was like, but I've done it multiple times. It's it's not like, I don't want to take it out to be that it's super hard, but like there were definitely moments where I was like, am I like, there's all these tubes in a bag? And the first one was just not intuitive. That's what I would say. For right. me, the very first tube was just not intuitive. And then I got the hang of it. I was like, all right, I guess I'm good. Um, right. Well, definitely check out Nikki's video if you're going to do a breath test just so yes. that you have a feel of what it looks like. I wish I had that video. That's why I made it, because I figured, well, um, there's some okay videos out there, but I would rather do like a step-by-step. So in the beginning, I talk about the wonderful prep diet and all its deliciousness, and then I do the test. And I think I I actually talked about the hypoglycemia after it at the end of the video. Fair warning, I don't make... At that time, I made zero effort to edit my videos in a beautiful or interesting (laughs) way. So it's literally just me sitting and talking to you and doing the breath test. So don't expect right. anything really cinematic from it. But, right. Um, you know, for what it's worth, hopefully a useful video. Um, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's see. So we talked about how to do the breath test and the lovely prep diet. We talked about how it is intrinsically flawed, but still useful for some people. The contraindications for the glucose and lactulose respectfully. Um, also, I would add, if you have known candida issues, or if you highly suspect candida or yeast issues, similarly, I would not use glucose for that. Mm-hmm. Glucose, uh, candida, pardon, candida loves glucose. It seems kind of indifferent to fructose, and it really could give a flying crab about lactulose. So if you want a sugar that's not going to feed candida, do the lactulose. If you feed it glucose, as I witnessed, I fed yeast, apparently, because I kid you not, the next day, full-blown vaginal yeast infection. And that's very atypical for me. Like, right. in this well, day it's and age, a lot. Like, it's a lot of glucose, too. It's not like you're having... I'm telling you, it was, it was like three quarters of a cup. It might have even been a full cup of actual glucose powder that you just mix with water and chug it down. It was gross. And I wish in retrospect, I wish I had like a finger stick or my CGM that day because I should have tested my blood sugar. I really wonder where my blood sugar ended up. Yeah, I think those are all great points. I think that the last thing that I that I feel could be valuable is talking a little bit about like interpretation. And Mm -hmm. obviously we want you to work with someone if you have. Yeah, SIBO that knows what they're doing to interpret. But I find all the time I'm looking at breath tests and being like, uh, like, I don't necessarily know if I would consider this SIBO or, or if this warrants like the most aggressive treat, like, you know, three Mm -hmm. rounds of herbals based on this breath test. Um, I'm getting a lot of like, there's a lot of borderline where it's like, depending again, maybe it, it comes down to 
analyzing what the particular person's profile is and also what their transit time looks like. Mm-hmm. But I do find that there's times where I'm like interpreting some breath tests where a provider has said, Ooh, this is positive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm like, eh, I don't think so. Um, it, sometimes it, it, I think it really depends on where they're using their, the cutoff. their cutoff. Right. Yeah. Like again, some people use 120, which I think is too long. Preposterous. For, Absolutely right, not. Way if too you go to one of those for, providers, run away immediately. Right. <laughs> With lactulosis, especially. Um, yeah. That's that's long. And so, yeah, I I think there's been some frustration like when with that, too. Um, I don't know if you've seen that as well. Yeah. And again, coming from the functional space. Right. I, I have yet to see a SIBO breath test from a GI doctor that was misrepresented as a positive result. But right. I've seen that pretty, because let's face it, the reality is, is that SIBO is very sexy, right? Right. Now. And it's, it's like, it's the modern day Candida, right? right? Like in like the nineties, it was all about Candida and now it's all about SIBO and it's, it's the poster child. It's, it's this like chosen child right now. And it's good because a lot of people who have SIBO are finally getting an appropriate diagnosis and there's more information and summits and books and that's great. But also, you know, it like when Dottis Karazian wrote his thyroid book, all of the functional medicine providers on planet Earth started saying, I work with Hashimoto's. I work right. with hypothyroidism. And it's like, cool, but so does every other functional medicine doctor. Right. Now, it it's SIBO. Everybody's like, oh, well, I, I'll... I'll work with SIBO and right. it's, I would just gently suggest that not everybody who works with SIBO is a SIBO expert. Right. And I'll leave it at that. But yeah, I've seen that pretty, not frequently, but I've seen it a fair amount of times coming from yeah. other functional practitioners where I think it's overdiagnosed with, from what I've read, 90 minutes seems to be a good cutoff point for glucose for the mm-hmm. most part. And you wouldn't really expect to see anything happen after that point because glucose is readily absorbed by your body. So for me, for example, that's why my blood sugar went crazy because my body just sucked it all up and absorbed it. There was no bacterial fermentation, so my body just sucked it all in. And it was like I had 8 million chocolate bars all at once, but way less fun. So, you know, for glucose, it's going to get absorbed by the time it reaches your colon anyway. So you wouldn't expect anything to happen after the 90 minute mark. Right. Um, so certainly any sort of peak that you get in the first 90 minutes, you could attribute it to SIBO if it meets the criteria and the thresholds. For lactulose, 90 is probably too far out. You're probably mm-hmm. starting to see colon fermentation. So for lactulose, some studies suggest that you need to use a 60 minute cutoff. Mm-hmm. Um, Some still are, you know, between 60 and 90. I think for me, if a patient normally struggles with constipation and they did a lactulose-based test, I would probably be willing to be a little bit flexible up to the 90 mark. Because they have slow transit anyway. So I would, depending what kind of a peak we got, like what is it, Um, 20 parts per million for hydrogen. Like if somebody with... This doesn't make sense, but just go with me anyway. If somebody with constipation 
had a peak of hydrogen at 21, difference between the high and the low, right at the 90 minute mark, I probably wouldn't be compelled by that. Because it's like right. right on the cusp. It's barely positive And it's right. a little bit close to the 90 minute mark. But if somebody with constipation with a normally slow transit had a peak of methane, say, of like 40 at the 90 minute mark, I'm probably going to say, oh, right. okay, yeah, I'm going right. to take that into consideration. That looks like SIBO. Right, um, right. Yeah. So it depends. If it's somebody with diarrhea and then they did a lactulose test and they get a peak around the 90 minute mark, I'm probably not going to think it's SIBO. right. Right. But if yeah. you get a peak around the 60 or maybe 75 minute mark, I'm more willing to entertain the thought of SIBO for that situation. Right. So what I'm hearing you doing is taking consideration of the individual client and your interpretation. What? Crazy. Yes. It's not crazy. so straightforward that we could just... We joked yet again, dear listeners, we joked that... oh. SIBO breath testing. This is going to be a short episode. We've already been talking for an hour and six minutes. I'm just going to throw that out there because it is, it's, it's more complicated. We could have just done a really boring episode and said, it's an imperfect test. Here's how you do it. End of story. Go get breath tested. Everybody on planet earth get breath tested. Why do I keep saying breast tested? Oh my gosh. Maybe you need to get your breasts tested too. Maybe, (laughs) no, maybe this is like, okay. There must be one listener who's listening right now and and you're like, like, oh, thanks for the reminder. Susan, or whoever you are, you're overdue on your mammogram schedule (laughs) and you found a lump and you know you need to get it tested. So like, go get your breast tested for God's sake, Susan. So I don't know, like maybe that was meant to reach somebody named Susan or otherwise. But anyway, back to breath testing. SIBO testing, you know, it could have been a very short episode, but I would rather share the pros, the cons, the thoughts. Right. And yeah. one other thought that I have about breast testing. I feel like, yes, I feel that we've bashed practitioners a lot. So I'm like, but I still need to say it. Same. I've had a lot of people come to me and they're like, my practitioner said I have the worst breath test they've ever seen and I look at it and I'm like it's a very like middle of the road like I I would not think it was super abnormal like abnormally high so just if you hear a practitioner say that I I would take it as a grain of salt I don't know depending on the practitioner yeah I agree I do think you know if you go and see Allison Seebecker or one of us and I mean we wouldn't tell people that but theoretically if you see somebody who treats SIBO almost exclusively and works with it all day, every day, and they tell you that, then I would take that to the bank a little right, bit more. Right, right, um, right. And sometimes, too, like, it's not always super clear, like, what practitioners are up to and what they're treating. But I think that's, it's a weird combination of, like, questionable bedside manner. <laughs> um, yeah. Like, yeah. it's, I get why, because I've had patients tell me that, too. Um, right. I think it's a combination of the oftentimes the patients are so miserable and sick and bloated and right, constipated. And right. they're just like looking for answers. They're looking for any little ray of sunshine, anything to understand what's going on with their body. So it's tempting as a practitioner to tell that person like, oh, wow, this is the worst ever. 
And it kind of, you know, it's like, it's validating for that person. Right. Like, oh, that's why I feel like garbage. Okay, at least I have an answer now. But also it does start to get in your head of like, I have the worst case of SIBO. Right. I have right. the most progressed case of SIBO. I'm never, it's going to take me 15 years to cure my SIBO. And I have to stay on low FODMAP for the rest of my life. And I have to stay on antimicrobials for the rest of my life because it's such a wicked case of SIBO. Like it starts right. leading you down that path. Right, 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 right. So, you know, I get why practitioners might want to offer that little bit of validation to their patients and that little bit of like understanding. But also like, dude, be careful with that. Like we're right. gonna lead people well, down a really iffy yeah. path. Yeah, and I, I think that you're exactly right to that a lot of practitioners that can, like they, they have some knowledge of SIBO, but aren't mm-hmm. necessarily doing tons of testing. Maybe that out of the 10 tests they've run, this is yeah. the highest one. It could certainly be, be yeah. the highest level, but it's not like, I think sometimes the clients who have been told that are more along the lines of what you're saying, where it's like, oh my gosh, I have this horrible case. Doomed. Right. And it leads them to that little Karen in their head of like, oh, no, like what you're saying, I have to do this. I my body's crap or whatever. I can't. The SIBO is going to be gnarly and stick around for a while. And mm-hmm. it, it's oftentimes not the case. Like, I would even say almost all the clients that I've had tell me that I've like looked at their testing and it's rarely like anything special in the rarely profound right 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 yeah and keep in mind too i think we mentioned this in one of the episodes about the SIBO gases but keep in mind the degree of gas production Mm -hmm. doesn't correlate with symptom severity for hydrogen i don't know if we have data on hydrogen sulfide yet i don't know if we can say whether the degree of gas production correlates with symptoms. So I'm going to leave that one kind of as a question mark. Um, For methane, it does. Usually the more methane production you have, the more constipated you are. So there's some degree of truth with that. But like if you have a hydrogen breath test and you have hydrogen SIBO and somebody tells you like, oh God, you had a a peak of 862. This is the worst case of SIBO ever. That actually doesn't mean that that correlates with the most severe symptoms or the most like progressed case or difficult to treat case it it's not quite that linear with hydrogen so right for what it's worth you're not right but i you're you're dead on like i've seen some pretty high methane cases where it's like their gut is is not moving (laughs) you know when when their methane cement right are, are are very high i've seen a couple very high methane cases and it seems to certainly correlate with the degree of constipation. Yeah. Yeah. The only other thought that like just came to me when we were during our discussion too is like with hydrogen sulfide now in the trio, um, Mm -hmm. the trio smart, is it, it's trio smart, right? Yeah. There's a Mm -hmm. smart on there. Okay. I'm just making sure I'm, I'm not confusing IBS smart and trio. Well, it's the same, it's the same company. That's why. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. And, and with the trio smart, do you think like, because I know eggs are like a part of the prep. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, like, does the prep need to change? This is just something that's come to me now. So I haven't really thought this through. Yeah. But like, 
I wonder if the prep, like there's different considerations prep-wise with hy- hydrogen sulfide, hmm. because again, like I would think, like if someone had hydrogen sulfide, eggs could potentially create some gas, but... Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, keep in mind there's a lot of sulfur in uh, the mucus of the yeah. intestines as well. Yeah. So yeah. it might not make a tremendous difference if you have a couple of eggs the day before the right. test. But that's a valid point. I think, you know, it's interesting. Again, that could be an interesting study. Like have right. somebody, have some people do the prep diet normally how it's, how it's uh, done and then have another group of people do it without the eggs and just do like the chicken and the rice. Right. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I think when I looked at dietary factors with hydrogen sulfide um dairy definitely plays a role um red meat red meat yeah i don't know eggs do contain sulfur but i don't know if there's any research like right like to the degree yeah and it might just be that it hasn't been researched yet right um, but I don't know if I've seen anything linking eggs specifically with hydrogen sulfide production, but theoretically yeah. it would make sense. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think we know. I was just, the, the thought popped into my head. I'd hate like to limit chewing the on your thoughts. Right. I, I hate to limit that already crappy diet, uh, anymore, but just a thought that popped in. Yeah. Well, and one more thought too, going back to how crappy that diet is. Um, you could also skip the prep diet altogether and fast for 24 hours before your test. Mm-hmm. I have had some patients decide to do that where they basically, they look at the handout I give them with their very few food choices and they just decide, ah, screw this. I'm just not going to eat for the day before. Yeah. And that, that probably works just fine too. Um, I yeah. actually, randomly enough, I don't know if I told you this yet. So, um, I, We're going to diverge from the conversation momentarily, people. So sometimes I get shiny thing syndrome, right? Like Mm. we learn about a new thing and we're like, ooh, shiny. And, you know, and we like want the shiny. So I, for a couple of months, I think, maybe a year, I don't even know. Hold on. Um, I've been hearing about this metabolic biome plus from biotics and it's one of those programs where it's like you do two of these shakes a day plus one normal meal um and you have like a little packet of supplements to take and it's you know like a seven day thing and i thought "Eh, all right it's been a while it's been a long while since i've done anything like this and i thought "Ooh, there's like all sorts of polyphenols and good stuff for the gut microbiome cool i'll give this a whirl and i forget now what the entire purpose uh, oh the the point being i've already quit because I just, it, the shakes are 220 calories. I am a six foot tall woman. Right. That is inadequate. I felt malnourished after doing it for two days. Now, granted, they do let you have snacks, but I was finding myself already like needing to supplement the shakes with other food, like nuts and apples and like right. free pasta. And, whatever. and I'm like, screw this. I might as well just eat regular food. And right. I don't know, like, if it's, I'm going to go, I'm going to try to reintroduce it at one per day and do it a little bit slower because I'm cheap and I paid for it, so I might as well use it. Right. Um, But it actually was kind of making me feel bloated and not super good either. So I don't know if it was just, like, too too much new stuff for my gut all at once. Right. Um, Or if it was the fact that 
I was drinking these two shakes and then feeling the need to like munch and make up for the calorie deficit right. later in the day. I don't know what it was. Like a different um, meal pattern. Yeah. So I'm not sure. And, you know, one of my beefs with protein shakes and smoothies is that you're not chewing. So right. you don't get like that phase of the digestive process. You don't get a lot of good enzyme output when you're right. not chewing. Right. Um, but one of the points was, I, so segue back, is that I had the thought yesterday, because that was my second day trying to do this, I realized this is so much harder to do than fasting. To meet. <laughs> right. For, for right. me, you know, when I get into my fasting mode, it's it's like I could flip a switch in my brain now where I'm just like, all right, I'm not eating. And then it's like, I don't need to question everything. Right. Like, I can just be like, I'm not eating today. And my brain is like, all right. And I get a little bit hungry, but it's not a big deal. For this, it was like, I'm eating, but I don't feel well nourished. I'm not satisfied. And in that, it's like, oh, well, what else? How much extra should I eat? And like, is this okay? It just, it was like way more decisions right, than normally right. it would be. So I think it was like this decision fatigue element of right. it as well. Whereas again, when I fast, I'm just like, all right, no food. Yeah. And done. Flip the switch. Move on right. with my life. And then I could just like go about my life for the two or three days. So right. anyway, it's not, it's not anything against this particular product. I thought it looked good enough on paper that I wanted to try it. So that's saying something. Mm. But yeah, I don't know if it's the fiber, the polyphenols, the different meal patterns, the stress of like the decision fatigue of what else right. I can eat with it. Right. Um, like I'm still husband, hungry. Yeah. Yeah. Like not, not super. Um, the hangriness. Not, not the hangriness of it. Not my favorite. Yes. Yes. Hmm. But yeah. <laughs> anyway, so. If the thought of, like, restricting your diet that severely for the day leading up to the SIBO diet is really right. off-putting to you, it might truly be easier for you to just fast the day before and not eat anything at all. Yeah, I, I wonder, too. We, we definitely need to do an elemental diet mm, episode, yeah. too. That would be really good. Um, I have that on my radar for my YouTube channel, too. I haven't gotten around to doing a video on it yet, though. Yeah, but I think, like in the similar vein to like elemental of your experience with the shakes first off they taste like awful and secondly usually people aren't able to get enough intake yeah um for what they need and again for like a three-week period Mm -hmm. pretty rough um miserable word i was going to use but right right miserable but we needed we should do a, a a discussion around elemental sometime soon i will add it to our list of topics right now my darling right now Ooh. but other than that do we have anything else with breath tests i can't i think of anything that was pretty darn comprehensive at least for SIBO breath testing we didn't we didn't talk about h pylori breath testing or right you know, fructose malabsorption. There are other breath tests for the record. Right. And there are always breast tests that you can get done as well. <laughs> yeah. But um, get your breath think, tests yes, done. Whoever you are and... that was meant to hear this message, go get your mammo. Yeah. <laughs> or whatever it is you need to do. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I think that was a pretty comprehensive discussion on SIBO breath testing, if I do say so myself and yourself. Um, yeah, so I think that's about a wrap, partner. So, guys, you know the drill, but I'm going to tell you anyway. 
As always, your feedback, your questions, and your likes, comments, and shares are so deeply appreciated. If you love this episode or the podcast in general, look, we're boring Ava to death. She yawned. If no, you love this I've been episode, yawning this whole time. <laughs> oh, I'm thanks. sorry. If you love this episode, if you can share a link or just drop the name in one of your IBS groups, your SIBO groups, your gut healing groups. I mean, Lord knows there's a million of them out there. But if you can help us reach more people and ultimately help the people that need this kind of help, then that would be so deeply appreciated. As always, you can follow us on Instagram at ibs.freedom.podcast. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm getting the hang of this. Yeah. And are. our Gmail email address is ibsfreedompod at gmail.com. Or you could leave comments in the YouTube, uh, you know, doodad down below. We do collect questions for Q&A episodes, which we do sporadically and when we feel like it. So if you want to email questions or put them in the YouTube comments below, we will gradually collect those over time and do Q&As. But we probably won't have a chance to email you back or comment back on the actual thread. You'll have to wait for Q&As for your answers. Uh, But yeah, I think that's about a wrap, folks. So thank you for tuning in. As always, rate us five stars, please and thank you. And like and subscribe to this YouTube channel. And we will see you in the next episode of the IBS Freedom Podcast. Toodaloo.